Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. This is Jim Donovan. It's currently 10 a.m. on a Saturday. I'm recording this using the Spokane Public Library's internet access, as I'm not currently in Los Angeles. <sighs> I hate horror movies. They always pitch hauntings in the most ridiculous light. It was fitting, then, that I got the text from Control while I was watching a post-Halloween horror movie marathon. Investigate Spokane, Washington. A man by the name of James Stewart reports his family's being haunted by a demon. If his claims are accurate, schedule an exorcism. The text had the local parish information. I've rarely spoken about this control, but I saw demons when I was a kid. So did my brother, but we never saw one at the same time. I don't remember much, but I do remember waking up and seeing, in the corner of my room, a creature darker than the darkest shadow, staring at me. It wouldn't move until I did, never wavering. I'd sit up in my bed, and it would notice me looking at it. And then... I don't really remember what happens next, but my parents would run in and find me screaming. There was a solid year of my childhood where no one in my family would be able to sleep for a whole uninterrupted night. I'm not familiar with Spokane. Yes, the West Coast covers my area of responsibility, but there are supposed to be dozens of paranormal Pinkertons covering the U.S. We'd appreciate an answer control. No one is answering their emails, their phones. I flew out of Burbank International Airport around 9 in the morning and landed just before noon. I drove the six miles from Spokane International Airport to the Stewart's house, just off of Coeur d'Alene Park. Nice place. Brick-lined walks never got a style. There was a brass knocker on the door. House had white walls, clean windows, trimmed hedges. I rapped on the green-painted wood of the door. I only used a knocker if I intended to intimidate a person, and since I was here to help, intimidation was not my goal. Negative feelings aren't useful in these situations. Honestly, I kind of expected to walk in and find the Stewarts had a kid who was just acting out and throwing plates all over the place at night. A tired-looking man in his mid-thirties answered the door. As I suspected, the man at the door was James Stewart, and unlike the actor who shared his name, he was neither tall nor skinny. I introduced myself by saying, Hi, I'm Jim. I hear you have a problem with demons? A look of tangible relief passed over his face. The tight grip that stress held on his face relaxed perceptibly. Yes. Yes, please, come in, he said. As I passed over the threshold of the house, I was struck with a wave of nausea. I wanted nothing more than to vomit right that second. It was like being on a broken tilt-a-whirl at the state fair. The blood rushing in my head was as loud as a freight train. My hand shot out to grab the doorframe and steady myself, but the crashing waves of vertigo threatened up in me. James grabbed my upper arm and forced me to look him in the eyes. He said, hey, Hey, it's okay. It's okay. Everyone feels it. It passes. You get used to it. I wanted to tell him I didn't ever want to get used to it, but I blacked out. What sort of people got used to this? The next thing I remember was slowly waking up on a couch. A wet washcloth pressed to my head. My eyes were still closed, 
but I felt a hand on my wrist taking my pulse. Excuse me, sir, can you hear me? I wanted to take a nap, but a woman's voice interrupted my repose. She must have seen me twitch. Waking up after uh, an event is never pleasant. You had a brief syncope episode, but I think you're in the clear now. Your blood pressure is in a healthy range. Do you have a history of low blood pressure, or fainting in general? This was Dr. Stewart, James's wife. She was dressed in scrubs, so it looked like she had just finished a shift. I moved into a sitting position, and looked around the living room. Dr. Stewart went to fetch me a bottle of water. There was the usual bookcase full of Blu-rays and DVDs, and a lone book that was so out of place it was like one of those dweeb Star Trek cosplayers in the Renaissance festivals. Their massive TV looked to be sporting the latest video game console. I can't keep track of these things, but it looked like some sort of alien obelisk. And one entire wall of their living room was devoted to some odd tribal art. A collection of some sort of African fetishes or voodoo dolls. I'm not sure which. They didn't move, but sometimes, when the corner of my eye caught them, they danced and jabbered silently, stuck on the wall. There was a crack in the nearest window, just at the edge, radiating from the nearest fetish. I thought I had found my first suspect. Dr. Stewart was happy to tell me about the ugly things. She pointed at one of them. Oh, that's a Haitian voodoo loa. I worked a bit with Doctors Without Borders, and when I left, a local Ungan priest sold me that idol for good luck. I like it. It's got a rustic charm to it. We just kept on buying them. Personally, I thought it was one of the creepiest things I'd ever seen, but whatever. This wasn't a proof so much as a warning. Like an auditor discovering his first potential red flag in an expense report. I slowly stood up, careful not to go too fast and risk triggering a relapse. And I went over to look at the voodoo idol. It was a red doll, horned with <clears throat> a giant penis. I looked back from the idol to Dr. Stewart and raised an eyebrow. She rolled her eyes and said, Don't be such a prude. That's Papa Legba. He's supposed to bring good luck and health to the household. So, I thought it was appropriate to put him here. That definitely raised some red flags. It's that classic little phrase, Names have power. I turned back to the idol. I considered slipping into the Verambicio to see if this was indeed the cause of whatever hauntings were happening here. But, there are some nightmares I don't want to risk. I would be very foolish to look into the true form of a genuine witch-doctor-crafted voodoo doll, even if it wasn't the cause of the hauntings. Dr. Stewart said, We were just about to sit down to some dinner. James and I hoped you would join us and meet our son. Maybe see what you can do to help us. I looked around, realizing I hadn't seen James since I came in. Dr. Stewart apparently noticed my confusion and said, Oh, don't worry. James went upstairs in case Andrew needed help in the bath. He just started bathing himself a few weeks ago. They'll both be downstairs in a few minutes. I noticed there was a Stouffer's lasagna box on the kitchen counter. Not a bad option for a family of young urban professionals. I'm surprised that Dr. Stewart had the time to open it herself. Suddenly, I heard a noise like an elephant, mid-trample, and a little tow-headed boy burst into the kitchen and practically tackled my legs. I nearly lost my balance, and I stared helplessly at James as he came trotting into the kitchen. Sorry about that, he chuckled as he pried his son off me. This is my son, Andrew. Andrew, this is... I'm sorry, I never caught your name. Detective Jim Donovan. Hello, Andrew. Good to meet you. Andrew suddenly got very shy and immediately turned his head from me and buried it in his father's armpit. 
I don't understand kids at all. Dinner passed pleasantly, and after they put Andrew to bed at seven, the adults sat up and talked. It started out quite Hollywood. Plates shattering in their cupboards, animals and birds avoiding the area, milk spoiling the day they got it. Andrew worried them, but they wouldn't talk about it. I let it go. Urban professionals like to talk about themselves. James said, If this place was haunted, the realtor should have told us. A few nights ago, I heard a noise, and I saw something standing at the foot of my bed, staring at me. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. I just wanted to scream. It was blacker than the shadows of the room, and it had glowing red eyes. It just stared at me. Dr. Stewart patted her husband's hand and said, I told you, hon, that's just a sleep paralysis nightmare. It's not real. It can't hurt you. I know better. For thousands of years, people have woken up in the middle of the night, unable to move, and seeing nightmarish creatures hovering over them. Sometimes, the creature is on their chest, preventing them from breathing. The creature disappears, perhaps in the blink of an eye. Science has explained this by saying that the mind is still dreaming while the body wakes up. It says that the creature one sees is nothing more than a minor hallucination. In my experience, however, when the body is asleep, the mind gets closer to the dimension where angels and demons dwell. And in those fleeting seconds of wakefulness, the mind is lingering in that dimension and is able to see things as they truly are. A minor verum vicio, if you will. But I can't blame people for trying to find a scientific explanation for the spiritual. Reality is less frightening if you call it a hallucination. I said nothing. I didn't want to take sides in what was clearly a spousal argument that they had been having for some time. Besides, I might learn something if I keep quiet. They argued about the stress affecting their work for an hour. I suggested to the couple that I stay in the guest bedroom for a couple nights, just to get the feeling for what was happening in the house. They agreed more rapidly than I expected. I had anticipated some reluctance from the unbelieving doctor, or perhaps James displaying a little concern at letting a strange man so near his family. But perhaps things were desperate. They looked relieved. They weren't telling me everything. While I had brought my sleeping bag with me, and that couch was looking plush, the Stewarts had a guest bedroom. Going into the situation, I'd expected the need to investigate without, um, consent of the homeowners, since most creepy demonic things tend to happen around 3am. I don't know if they expected I'd need to sleep over, or if it was just a happy coincidence that they were prepared. Heck, even the guest room was totally clean, with fresh sheets and some complimentary toiletries in the attached bathroom. It felt like a very nice hotel room. Color me impressed, but suspicious. Good intentions in this era? For all I knew, the sewers were just hospitable people who liked guests sleeping over. Being from LA, I'm not used to guest bedrooms. Much less am I used to people being friendly around guests. Normal America takes some getting used to. Doctor and Mr. Stewart got ready for bed. Apparently, they both start work pretty early in the morning, so going to bed at 9pm wasn't unusual for them. For me, of course, it wasn't just unusual. It was downright impossible getting to sleep that early. Therefore, I slipped a couple of sleeping pills and got ready. I set my phone alarm for 2.30am, expecting the real craziness to take place at 3. You see, much like there are certain times of the year where the barriers between the spiritual and physical planes are thinnest, 3am is the time of day when evil tends to be the most active. Jack talks about midnight and dawn, but that's more for the physical monsters and wizardry, not demonic activity. I've heard some priests theorize it's because Jesus died at three in the afternoon, which, being a great defeat and insult for the creatures of Otraterre, they spite his sacrifice and eventual resurrection. I'm not sure about that. 
the majority of people tend to die in the early mornings, especially around 3, because that's around the time that the blood pressure is at its lowest, due to the normal patterns of REM sleep cycles. How many people knocked on a door during their morning routine, heard no answer from their loved one, and entered into a new and grief-filled world? For those spiritual forces of Ochater, it doesn't matter what time it is, only that misery is created, pain magnified, and a soul dragged to hell. They use every second they can get. I slipped into a deep sleep, not wanting to waste too much time with the Stuarts if I could help it. I woke up to a deep, throbbing noise, sounding like something scraped a cat against a bass guitar. My eyes snapped open, and I looked around my room. There was nothing. I checked my phone. Dead. It was charging in the wall, but it was totally dead. Then, the springs of my mattress depressed, as though a heavy weight had just climbed onto the bed. I saw the print, not a hand, not a claw, like the point of a hoof or tentacle pushing down into the high-quality foam. It popped up, not even ruffling the sheets. I jumped out of that bed faster than I have moved in my entire life. My pulse was hammering away in the high 200s, crashing in my ears like the ocean. I couldn't see anything. As I backed away to the door, I felt a sharp burning pain across my chest as four little claw marks slashed through my pajama shirt. The force behind the blow was sufficient to cause me to stumble back a bit, so I know that whatever had hit me, it didn't have big claws, or else I would have been easily eviscerated. Small mercies. Whatever this was, it was playing with me. Ghosts may attack people, but they aren't known for their desire to play around. They play for keeps, without exception. Only demons, who have gone insane, actively attack humans. Only demons who have lost all hope in their rebellion against God decide to actively torment God's creation so brazenly. Sane demons are more subtle. Sane demons hate us, but they more or less work together to influence people to damnation. Before I could gather breath to rebuke it in the name of Christ, it appeared to me. I might have known it was a feral thing, almost unreasoning in hate, but it still set me back. Light came in from the open window, silvery white, I couldn't remember what direction the room faced. In front of me was a creature blacker than shadow. So black I could have seen it in a lightless cave. It stood on two feet, like a man, but its features were indistinct. I couldn't tell if it was wearing clothing, but I could see its eyes. They glowed red, like embers in a dying fire, and they stared malicious hatred at me. Humans are not capable of hating as deeply as purely as a demon can. I felt like an animal before a human in hunting gear, not about to be killed for my pelt and meat, but to be killed and left to rot. Even the vultures waved off, so nothing could benefit from me. It raised its hand, and I saw its claws, small, not much bigger than a human's fingernails, covered in my blood. It brought that hand to where its mouth should be and opened its maw. Though it initially looked human, cut like the moon outside as it opened. The mouth rounded to an oval, like a lamprey eel, and it had rows and rows of sharp, serrated teeth. It hungered. A pseudopod-like tongue flicked out and cleaned the blood off its claws. The demon savored the taste. Its red eyes closed, and the baleful glare flickered, dipping in and out. It shivered in pure bliss as it relished my blood, 
bending and waving to and fro. I took this opportunity to run. I couldn't see it follow. My blood must have been too potent to immediately shake off. That which gives me access to the Verum Vicio makes me tasty to supernatural predators. But this was the first time I had seen one of them lick me, like a chef tasting a roast hog on the spit. I screamed fire as I ran. Nothing gets people moving faster in an emergency than the threat of fire. Mr. and Dr. Stewart burst out of their bedroom, and Mr. Stewart ran for his son. They looked at me with wide eyes, filled with terror. They were too tired to be thinking clearly, but so scared that the adrenaline dulled their wits. As I left the house, Dr. Stewart pawing at a dead phone. I yelled back, I left my detective briefcase inside, and ran back into the house. This was obvious nonsense, but I wasn't rational enough to come up with a good reason to enter the house again. It was still dark inside, but in my sleep-deprived, adrenaline-high mind, I was single-mindedly focused on destroying the voodoo fetish. It had to be the source. Usually, a case like this is a slow burn. You have multiple suspects, a few false leads, creepy child drawings. The Hollywood works. But this time? I knew that this thing was toying with the stewards. Now that it tasted me, it wanted more. If it couldn't get me, it would attack the stewards at the next opportunity. The black shadow demon appeared at the top of the staircase. It looked at me again. The slash wounds on my chest heated up, and I clutched the scratches in pain. Blood flowed out in tiny lines, hanging in the air. The cuts weren't deep, and I wasn't shooting out blood like a fire hose. But the demon followed the threads from my blood on his claws back to my body. He was using my blood to turn me into a puppet, a thing of rage and possession. He slowly stalked down the stairs and looked at me, hunching, the head twisting and turning on non-existent bones. He came closer and stood up straight. I could not defend myself my body experiencing something like rigor mortis, the warmth flowing out of me. I didn't think they could do this to a waking man. He slinked like a panther, smooth in ways that humans cannot mimic. He drew up in front of me and stood at his full height. Unable to move, unable to talk, I could only stare into his flame-red eyes and silently pray. The room around me bubbled as though it were melting, like boiling lead. And by the same token, I felt a hot, searing pain shoot through my skull as I stared. God almighty, I wept blood. And then, the clock in the kitchen chimed. The demon's head jerked, as though hearing a call deeper than that of the clock. From the big window in the Seward's den, I saw the first light of dawn, brushing ever so gently across the wall. The demon recoiled as though it had been struck. I saw a hand, as white as the demon's body was black. It jammed into the demon's shadow-like form, fist into its chest, and it threw him into invisibility. Immediately, I was able to move again. I collected myself, shaking the mind-altering effects, and walked out of the house to meet the stewards. I got them set up in a hotel, until such time as an actual exorcist could handle the situation. They weren't happy with me, but no one can really argue with a man who has just wept blood. Once I implied that this could happen to Andrew, they settled down. Control, I'm in communication with the local parish, but until the Vatican sends someone to clean up the house, I'll need to be on hand to clean up this mess. Plus, I think I left my cell phone in there, and I'd really like to get it back. I'll drop off my case notes when the case actually resolves itself. Uh, Spokane, too, for the record. But until then, this is Jim Donovan. 
signing off. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international license. This episode was written and performed by Ken Dickison. Ken Dickison performs our audio editing. Ben Wheeler edits the drafts, directs, produces, and herds cats. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on SuperversiveSF.com, and wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts, or send an email at PinkertonsGhosts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.